Well, perhaps we could start with a, a prayer. Jesus, I pray that you anoint me with your spirit now to speak your word, say the things you want me to say, they ask that anything which I say which is of you may be remembered, and anything I say which is not of you may be forgotten. And Jesus, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon all present, to open the ears of their hearts and minds, to receive anything this afternoon in my talk and in their time here which you want them to receive of love, of truth, of healing. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Um, well, I shall say a few words to start with about the history of the charismatic renewal Pentecostal movement. Normally, people give the date of 1900 in America when a Methodist pastor, Charles Parham, with some of his flock, received some of the gifts of the Spirit which people weren't accustomed to receiving in those times. And then it spread from them to other Protestants in America and other countries. But in fact, we, we read in the, the book of the founder of the International Businessmen for Gospel Association, Dema Shakarian, that in fact, in Armenia and among the Russians, uh, in back in the last century, there were people praying in tongues and exercising the gifts which we now associate with the present charismatic renewal. Be that as it may, the first people involved in the Pentecostal movement weren't thinking of forming separate churches. They wanted to share this spiritual experience they've had with the other members of their churches. Uh, but they didn't receive a very warm reception in their churches, and perhaps some of them were rather indiscreet. And so, in fact, not being welcome in their own churches, they began to form their own Pentecostal churches. But it's interesting to note that the first secretary of the Pentecostal movement in this country was a man who lived and died an Anglican priest. And then, particularly after the last war, Christians in other churches like the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans began to come into the Pentecostal experience, uh, but instead of leaving their churches and joining a Pentecostal church, they remained in their churches. So you then began to get what were called Anglican Pentecostals, Presbyterian Pentecostals, Lutheran Pentecostals. And then to the surprise of a great many people, in 1967, Roman Catholics in the United States also began to come into this Pentecostal spiritual experience. I'll say more later about what that experience is. And among Roman Catholics, it happened especially at university centers, theological faculties, seminaries, Trappist monasteries, and places like that. And that surprised people because on the whole, people had thought of the Pentecostal movement as a rather emotional movement, rather fundamentalist, which wasn't for intellectual people. 
And uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, it started rather the other way around. And to this, to this day, the average Roman Catholic involved in the charismatic renewal is probably a more educated person than the average Roman Catholic. Well, it spread fairly quickly in the Roman Catholic Church, starting in America, so that by 1975, there was a gathering in Rome for several days of an international gathering of Roman Catholics involved in the charismatic renewal, and they were received by Pope Paul VI, who gave his sort of blessing to the movement. And that, been, uh, that was a thing which surprised many people. Many people thought, well, if there's one church which won't tolerate these extravagances or these exper spiritual experiences, it would be the Roman Catholic Church, which is so authoritarian and priest-ridden, whichever way you look at it. And, uh, but in fact, uh, the, the charismatic renewal has received, right from the start, quite a welcome in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, not that all Roman Catholics are happy about it. Indeed, some could be rather frightened by it. But nevertheless, from the first doctrinal from the first report of the doctrinal committee of the Roman Catholic bishops in America, uh, the, the, the welcome, there was a, a positive welcome. And I'm going to read to you, I hope it's not too great a length, some lines from the present Pope, Pope John Paul II's address to international leaders of the Catholic charismatic renewal in May 1981, this year, just before, in fact, he got shot. And he, he starts by um, saying something about what his predecessor, Pope Paul VI, had said. Pope Paul described the movement for renewal in the spirit as, quote, a chance for the church and for the world, end of quote. And the six years since that Congress have borne out the hope that inspired his vision. The church has seen the fruits of your devotion to prayer in a deepened commitment to holiness of life and love for the word of God. We have noted with particular joy the way in which leaders of the renewal have more and more developed a broadened ecclesial vision and have made efforts to make this vision increasingly a reality for those who depend on them for guidance. And we have likewise seen the signs of your generosity in sharing God's gifts with the unfortunate of this world in justice and charity so that all people may experience the priceless dignity that is theirs in Christ. May this work of love already begun in you be brought to successful completion. And that's saying rather a lot, isn't it? When he quotes his predecessor, Pope Paul VI, saying, describing the renewal in the Spirit as a chance for the church and for the world. And later in his talk, the present Pope um, reminded Roman Catholics in the renewal of the, the place of bishops and priests, but then he goes on to say a word for the priests. The priest, for his part, cannot exercise his service on behalf of the renewal unless and until he adopts a welcoming attitude towards it based on the desire he shares with every Christian by baptism to grow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there's a suggestion there that the priest should be welcoming the renewal, accepting it. It's been calculated that by now about four million Roman Catholics in the United States have been touched by the charismatic renewal. It's been calculated that about 700,000 Roman Catholics 
in the United States exercise the gift of tongue. And it certainly spread to practically all other countries. So you see, it's no longer in the Roman Catholic Church a sort of a small movement for a few people. But having said all that, what is the charismatic renewal? What is this spiritual experience? It's an experience frequently called baptism in the Spirit or the release of the Spirit. Roman Catholics believe, and members of I think most other historic churches, that when someone is baptized, whether that's as a child or later, they receive the Holy Spirit. We would believe that the Spirit comes again when people are confirmed, again when they receive the Eucharist, and again on other occasions, perhaps a retreat, when God may give them a special blessing. So when, when we talk about the, the baptism of the Spirit in this connection, or the release of the Spirit, it's not a first coming of the Holy Spirit. But we can have received the Spirit in baptism and in other ways, and yet he can be living a rather suppressed life within us, not free to act as he wants to. He can be choked by the cares of this world, by our sins, by all sorts of other things. And so this baptism of the Spirit, or this release of the Spirit, in a way is releasing the Spirit we've received. This is how a Roman Catholic would look at it. Releasing the Spirit we've received to act more freely and more fully in our lives. It's a, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Spirit, or the release of the Spirit, will never be exactly the same for any two people. Because God will deal with each person differently. We're all different according to that person's needs, according to the circumstances. But nevertheless, there is a characteristic experience, sufficiently characteristic to be able to recognize this person has received release of the Spirit, that person hasn't. And this again would link up with, you know, the past tradition in Christian history. There have been other movements of the Spirit in Christian history, like the Fathers of the Desert in the 4th century, or the early Benedictines in the 6th century or the friars in the 13th century, or the movement connected with the imitation of Christ, that great spiritual classic, later. There were sort of spiritual movements which are sort of characteristic. And the same thing in the Protestant world. I mean, there was the, the Wesleyan revival. And there was the great revival in Wales earlier in the century, a sort of spiritual revival. And I was talking to a Welsh Methodist pastor and he would say, well, you could talk about the Welsh Revival having come to a particular town and church or not. There was a sort of characteristic spiritual experience which began to spread fairly rapidly. So it's not a sort of new thing in Christian history that there should be a sort of characteristic spiritual experience you know, spreading in, in a form of some sort of movement. What are the main elements, so to speak, of this experience of baptism of the Spirit, release of the Spirit. I think the most important thing is the release of praise. And I shall be saying more about that later. But if you go to charismatic prayer groups, you'll find, I think, the main sort of element in their prayer is very much that of praise. That would probably be the element which would strike you most. And I think that the other blessings follow from that. 
And the other blessings are things like a new intimacy, a new experience of Jesus, a, a more personal experience of him, new peace and new joy, a new appreciation of the sacraments in the historic churches. I mean, R Roman Catholics who come into the charismatic renewal find that the Eucharist means more to them, not less. We'll go to Mass more frequently in the week, not less. And it will, in a very obvious way, this seems to be universally true, mean that the Bible becomes to mean much more to people. You know, the Roman Catholics aren't very good at reading the Bible on their own. And so many of them, but not only Roman Catholics, find that when they receive the release of the Spirit, they have a hunger for reading Scripture. The Bible means much more to them, a real desire to, to read it. In fact, what tends to happen is that when people come into this experience, less time for television, less time for newspapers, more time for prayer, more time for Bible reading. And there can be a new capacity to witness for Jesus. That's very common. I remember a man in our Cockfosters group, a Roman Catholic, a journalist, who felt that he was never able to speak to anybody about his religious beliefs. He was just sort of clammed up, couldn't speak. And when he received the release of the Spirit, that very next week he had an opportunity. Uh, his boss at work asked him to go and speak with the widow of a colleague who recently died. And he went, and for the first time in his life, he was able to speak of his hope in Jesus, of heaven, of eternal life. For the first time in his life, he was able to speak of these things. And people who receive this release of the Spirit often receive of strengthening of the gifts of the Spirit they already had and new gifts of the Spirit which they hadn't had before. Now I want to say a few words now about praise because, as I said, I think the most important element uh, is the release of praise. And what I'm going to say now is really the most important section of my talk. So, you know, listen to this even if you want to sleep afterwards on a Saturday siesta. Uh, The Psalms are full of praise, and they were the, the prayers of Jesus. So Jesus' life of prayer will be largely one of praise. In 1 Peter chapter 2, there's a wonderful sentence about praise, verse about praise. That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a consecrated nation, a people set apart to sing the praises of God who called you out of the darkness of his, into his wonderful light. A people set apart to sing the praises of God. That's what we are. And when our Lord himself, when Jesus taught us to pray with the Our Father, he gave us a prayer which starts with praise. Hallowed be thy name. And the Eucharist itself is meant to be primarily praise. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. Now, so much of Christ, the, the prayer of Christians tends to be asking for things. Now, we should ask for things. But asking for things shouldn't be the main theme of Christian prayer. And I think it's our neglect of praise which is responsible for the fact that so many of the promises Jesus made don't seem to be reflected very much in the lives of most Christians. 
You see, praise is rarely the first commandment or closely linked up with the loving God. Because in practice, loving God, praising God, worshipping God, adoring God, thanking God, run into each other. Now the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, everything. And so that's how we're commanded to praise him. Now I confess I've been a monk for about 20 years before I came into the charismatic renewal and I'd never really understood what was asked of me in the way of praise. And the life of a monk is meant to be the life of singing the divine praises. Yes, I said the office each day with my brethren, I said the glories at the end of the Psalms, but I never really began to understand the fullness of what was being asked of me. And I'll give an analogy which may help. Think of a woman who believes in prayer whose only child is in danger of dying. And she says, Lord, save my child. Now, into that prayer goes all her heart, her mind, her strength, her soul, her emotions, her everything. And she doesn't just pray it politely for a few seconds, like a glory at the end of the psalm. She goes on praying it. Her whole being is in that prayer. Her whole strength, everything. Well, that is how we are all commanded to love to praise God. All our strength, our heart, our emotions, our being, everything, put everything into it. That's how we're commanded to love him, to praise him. And I really hadn't had a clue after being 20 years of a monk that I was, that was what was really commanded of me. And so I think that when we really start giving ourselves with all our being to God, all our strength to praising him in this way. And this becomes the main thing in our life of prayer. When we do that, it's something quite different is happening on a much deeper scale. And God is never outdone in generosity. When we praise him with all our being, he showers his gifts and blessings on us. And I think it's because of our neglect of the first commandment of praise that we, don't, we experience so little of the promises Jesus gave us in the New Testament. You see, Jesus promised joy, he promised peace, he promised love, he promised healing, he promised power. How much of that do we see in most of our Sunday congregations? Or our religious communities? Well, we see something of it, thank God, that all the saints in all our churches but we don't see all that much of it. And I think it's because we neglect the first commandment. We don't give ourselves to praising, to loving God with all our being. And when we do that, when we, do, when we give ourselves to praising in this way, God showers his blessings upon us. Now, I think for those who are in the charismatic renewal, I think there's a danger we have to watch out for that our praise can easily get squeezed out. We come into the renewal, we have, an we, we have a receive a new gift of praise, wonderful blessings start happening in our lives, we find we're able to help other people in a new way, lots of people are asking us to help them and do things, we become so busy, so busy, that we've no longer time to praise God very much. And as we, we become so busy telling others to praise but haven't time to praise ourselves, you know, the very blessings themselves die away. And for those of us in the renewal, I think we have to 
live a disciplined life of prayer and give enough time daily to prayer in general and especially to praise. And I would like to suggest that enough time, we should try and think perhaps, think perhaps in terms of an hour a day in prayer and Bible reading. I know some people couldn't always manage that, but I think many people could, and if we got our priorities right, if we you know, put things in the order God would want us to do, I think many people could manage that hour, and I think it would transform their lives. And people can come into the charismatic renewal, receive a sort of spiritual uplift for a time, and then it can gradually fade away and they drop off. And I think it's very often because they haven't been willing to face up to the demands of a disciplined life of prayer, particularly praise. Those are just praying and praising when you feel like it. And there I think the charismatic renewal can learn something from the experience of religious life, of religious communities amongst the nuns, etc. Because, I mean, we know in religious life that you need a disciplined life of prayer and times set aside each day at regular periods. And I think many people in the renewal need to learn that, the importance of a disciplined daily life of prayer where we pray and praise whether we feel like it or not. And if we're not willing to face up to these demands of a disciplined life of prayer, then the blessings of the renewal will fade away. Do people want me to say a word about the gift of tongues? Well, I think that's something which puzzles a lot of people uh, in the historic churches, and it can be for many people a sort of difficulty. And I'll just say this. We first of all have to start by looking at the New Testament. Now, the end of St. Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, believers will speak in new tongues. And on the day of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, of the day of Pentecost, that's what we find happening, and elsewhere in the Acts of the Apostles. For instance, when St. Peter was speaking to Cornelius and his household, it says the Spirit fell upon them and they all began to speak in tongues. And that was doubtless how St. Peter largely knew the Spirit had fallen on them, because they began to speak in tongues. It says later that when St. Paul laid hands on the twelve people at Ephesus, they all began to speak in tongues. Then we find in 1 Corinthians 12, it's given as one of the gifts of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 14, St. Paul is correcting certain excesses in the use of this gift, but nevertheless he says in that chapter, now I want you all to speak in tongues. So it wasn't a sort of a rare gift for a few people. He also says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Now there are two sort of forms of the gift of tongues. One is uh, a sort of purely gift of prayer, a devotional gift, and that is probably about 99.9, .9, whatever it is, use of the gift of tongues, is a purely personal gift of prayer. Now, most people who have this gift will pray in tongues daily, and probably many times a day. The other use of the gift of tongues is giving, giving messages, which is rather akin to prophecy, and there someone else will interpret, and that's what St. Paul is largely speaking about in 1 Corinthians 14. And that is less common. For instance, I've been speaking in tongues probably every day for the last seven years. I've never given a message in tongues. So basically, the, prayer, the, the gift of tongues St. Paul is talking about when he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, uh, is a personal gift of prayer which enriches our prayer life. 
Now, it's not a sign of holiness, it's not a sign of Christian maturity, it's not a rare thing like ecstasy or something like that. It's a gift which is right to pray for because it's a normal gift, generate for those in the context of the charismatic renewal. And a great many people, through it, have received the strengthening of their prayer life. Now, when I tell you that it's estimated that 700,000 Roman Catholics in the United States today pray in, in tongues, you see, it's a very, very common gift. And I've known a cardinal with the gift of tongues, I've met bishops with the gift of tongues, I've known an Anglican archbishop and several Anglican bishops with the gift of tongues, I've met teenage children with the gift of tongues, I've met Jesuit university lecturers and theologians with the gift of tongues, mother generals and mother provincials, also very simple people people who are not yet ten. It's a gift which is coming to more and more people and blessing them. Now, you see, many people start with the thing, now, I don't want this gift. They feel I like something from the charismatic renewal, it seems to pet people up a bit spiritually, and many of us need that. But nevertheless, I don't want to speak in tongues, and I wish they wouldn't. And after all, what's wrong with English? Because, you know, many of the saints prayed in English only, and why, what's wrong with my prayer life in English? Now, I think we have to start accepting the New Testament as it is, not as we would have preferred it to be. Let's be honest. There are many Christians, clergy, theologians, perhaps, who if, I'm saying it's an impossible if, for me at any rate, if some textual experts were to discover that all the mentions of tongues in the New Testament were the second century edition and could be dropped, they would heave a sigh of relief and said, I knew that was a lot of nonsense. And they would just be relieved. But in fact, we have to start by accepting the New Testament as it is, not as how we would have liked it to be. And tongues is written and solidly written into the New Testament. So there's the biblical evidence. Then the other evidence is the growing number of Christians today who are finding that their, their spiritual life is greatly strengthened through the gift of tongues. And those two meet. If somebody's prayer life is so rich and so wonderful that they don't need anything more, all right, don't bother about the gift of tongues. But if your prayer life could do, you know, whose prayer life is so rich that they can afford to say no to a gift which God seems to want to give quite normally, a gift of prayer today. So, and you know, there's a sort of psychological barrier for many people there. You know, I think for the gifts of the Spirit and the gift of tongues in an obvious way, we've got to be willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. It applies to the gift of healing and the gift of prophecy too. But we've got to be willing, as Paul said, to be a fool for Christ's sake. And not mind what other people think of us. What? I thought you were a, a well-balanced person. What? You? <laughs> well... You've got to be willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. And also, become like little children. There's a way the gift of tongues is all like becoming like little children. You see, we are adult people in control of all that happens, but we're so much in control of all that happens that the Spirit isn't free to be in control sometimes, as he wants to be. I think a very important thing for those of us in the renewal, and indeed for others, is to avoid elitist thinking and speaking. Now, I don't think in practice it's so much that we think we're the spiritual elite, I think it's more that other people think that we think we're the spiritual elite. But nevertheless, being said as we do sometimes think that we're the spiritual elite. 
and there's no reason to do that. Um, you see, the fact that we've received the release of the Spirit and perhaps the gift of tongues and so on is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's not a sign that we're better Christians than others. Often we're clearly not. There are many Christians who have never gone to a prayer meeting, wouldn't dream of calling themselves involved in the charismatic renewal, who we have every reason to believe are much more full of the Holy Spirit than many people involved in the charismatic renewal, who indeed are much more charismatic in the general New Testament sense of the word than many people who are involved in the charismatic renewal. So we are not a spiritual elite. And I think it's highly desirable to avoid terminology which would give a false impression. I personally don't use the word spirit-filled Christian. And I don't personally use the word born-again Christian. Because all Christians, in one way, are called to be full of the Spirit and born again. And some of the people who wouldn't call themselves Spirit-filled, in fact, are much more full of the Spirit than some of the people who do call themselves Spirit-filled. No, the value of the renewal is not seen in whether we are always better Christians than others, when clearly we're often not. But whether we are better Christians than we were before we came into this charismatic renewal. And there we can nearly all say yes. And whether many other Christians would be still better Christians if they came into the charismatic renewal. They may be much better Christians than us already, but they would be still better if they came into this renewal of the Spirit. That's the, that's the, that's the test. And I think the charismatic renewal passed that test very well, because it has helped many Christians to become better Christians. And sometimes these people were people who were very much up the pole spiritually. You know, I think of a woman who I know, I pray with quite often, she's about in the 60s now, who for most of her life was a prostitute and a dosser. Now she goes to Mass twice a day, and she's full of the peace of the Lord and so on. The Lord has done absolute wonders in her. But the Lord has done wonders in her life through this renewal. Perhaps many people are brought into this renewal not because they're great spiritually, but because they're weak spiritually. Perhaps they're brought into this renewal, perhaps they receive the gift of tongues, not because they're strong in the life of prayer, because they're lousy in the life of prayer. They need an injection. Their need was greater. So let's avoid all elitist thinking and terminology. And I'll say to people who are not involved in the renewal here today, I think it's more a question of other people thinking that we think we're an elite than in fact that we actually do. Although we do sometimes fail in that way. Now, when I think of the charismatic renewal, my sort of pattern of thought is praise being the main thing, leading on to three things. Community, healing, and the third, evangelism and service together. And I think that these three are entirely interdependent. Because I think if it's a really Christian community, it will be a healing community and a community which is outward-looking in evangelism and service. That if we want true Christian healing, you need a community for that, and it will be in the context of the proclamation of the gospel. And I think for effective evangelism, we need community and we need the signs of healing. So I'm going to say a few words about each of these sections. First of all, about community. 
Many people who come into the charismatic renewal have a wonderful new experience of Christian community. They have a much more wonderful experience of community than people who have been chasing community through group, group dynamics in other ways for years. I'm not against all group dynamics. But in fact, joining together to fulfill the first commandment and praise God brings people far closer together in spiritual communion than a direct concentration on community. And this can lead to sort of people in prayer groups praying for each other daily, helping each other practically, and being committed to each other. And that's an important thing I would say, that it's, you see, anything which is based on only on feelings is based on sound. Feelings are important. There's an authentic part of emotion in Christian life. But it must be based only on that or primarily on that. And if we go to a prayer group or meeting, we sh must become committed. Once we realize that God wants us to be there, we need to be committed to that group and to pray for it daily, to pray for its leaders, pray for its members, pray for each other's daily, and committed to going to the prayer meeting unless there's a real reason for not doing so. You see, I think God brings many people into the renewal to receive. People are aware of the need. It may be a healing of spirit, mind, or body, or they might feel the need for a spiritual injection in the arm, so to speak. So they go to the prayer meeting in the beginning because of their needs. And that's quite an adequate reason for getting them there. But it's not an adequate reason for staying there. In the end, we have to go to the prayer meeting not to receive, but to give. We have to be committed to it, and to go to give. Give to God in praise, give to others in love. Now, in fact, the people who go to give will receive more than those who go to receive. But if people only go to receive, there comes a time when they think, well, I don't think I got much out of the last two meetings, and it's cold tonight, and I would like to look at that television program, and I have got a bit behindhand with the ironing, and then they just sort of drop off. No, you know, the, the joys and the blessings which people experience in the beginning must lead up to a real commitment to give, to pray for the others, to go and this is the reason for not doing so. And many people will perhaps drop off from the prayer groups because they've never been led to this serious commitment. They've never got beyond the point of going because I find it helpful and I'm receiving something from it. And for leaders in the renewal, we really have got to lead people to that commitment. And now, I think the, the charismatic renewal is almost, is also a very important hope for ecumenism. You know, classical ecumenism has, to some extent, run out of steam. It's done a great job. Thank God for it. Things like the conversations between Anglican and Roman Catholic theologians have been most important. Nevertheless, I think it has, to some extent, run out of steam. And, you see, you can't unite the churches just at the top level, at the level of theologians and church leaders. There's got to be a sort of, you know, the unity move has got to go right down to the bottom. And in a way, the charismatic renewal is the grassroots movement for unity. And when people gather together, as we do on Cockfosters every Monday evening, you know, to pr and praying with other members of other churches, praising God together, we experience a wonderful unity in Jesus. We experience how united we already are, 
and we have a, an increased desire to perfect that unity because we mustn't pretend that we're fully united, we're not yet fully united. But we're aware of how united we already are and we have a new desire to complete that unity. So I think the charismatic renewal has a very important role to play there. And also in another way ecumenically, you see, the ecumenical movement had made progress between churches which were fairly close to each other often. For instance, Anglicans and Roman Catholics were speaking well with each other, Methodists and Anglicans and so on. But between some of the sort of sections of the Christian world which were, you know, further apart, there was no dialogue. And between Roman Catholics and Pentecostals, it was a question of what cats spitting at each other, wasn't it? You know, I mean, Pentecostals thought we were the scarlet woman of the apocalypse and we thought they were a lot of crazy nuts. And, uh, you know, it, hostility and misunderstanding were at the maximum. And then the arrival of the charismatic renewal among Catholics surprised everyone and has cast a bridge, or is casting a bridge, a, a, across what was considered the most unbridgeable chasm in, in the Christian world. You know, people would have said, well, the Pentecostals and Roman Catholics could never begin to get together. That's the extreme. And uh, now, the, a wonderful sort of coming together there through the bridge of the Catholic charismatic renewal. I don't want to exaggerate the progress made, but I think there's a very great hope there. A very wonderful, God's doing a very wonderful thing. It really is a case of God doing something which everybody would have said 15 years ago was totally impossible. God in our eyes, before our eyes in these days, is doing the impossible there. Praise his holy name. A few words about healing. Jesus went about healing the sick. Jesus told his disciples to go about healing the sick. We read that in the ninth chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. And in the New Testament, there's a very close link between the preaching of the good news and the healing. You know, we read that at the end of Mark's Gospel. They went out preaching the good news and the Lord confirmed the word with the signs which followed it. Amen. And that's how the Gospel ends and the signs were largely or mainly healing. And Jesus promised power to his disciples. And I'll just read, you from, read to you from the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus promised power and that power is largely to be shown in healing. It was also to be shown in the love of the Christian community for each other. Well, do we see all that much power in most of our churches today? We're not talking about temporal power. There's been far too much of that sometimes in the churches. But the spiritual power which Jesus promised. Do we think of ourselves as filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? When people come into our churches, our Christian communities, do they feel, here is the power of the Spirit, the power of love? I think there's a real challenge there. And I think much of the weakness of our ch churches today is that they are spiritually powerless. 
or with very little power spiritually. Now when we pray for healing, we pray for healing of spirit, mind and body and the most important is healing is always spiritual healing. And we should keep the priorities right. If we put physical healing as the main healing, we shall get less physical healing, not more. You know, if at a sort of prayer meeting, somebody is totally blind and they see through healing, and there's another person who comes in rebellion against God and who doesn't know Jesus, and the second person is converted, the second is the most important healing. So it's imp we should always keep our priorities right there. The main healing is spiritual healing, but that's not a let out to say don't bother about the physical. No. In fact, when we concentrate in the right way on spiritual healing, we shall have more physical healing, not less. Now, I want to say a few reasons why people are often not healed. It may be lack of faith. It may be lack of prayer and perhaps fasting. Lack of faith and prayer and fasting, perhaps on the part of those who are ministering, on the part of the church community, or perhaps, sometimes, on the part of the person who's being prayed with. So somebody can be healed without having any faith at all. Jesus will sometimes heal someone with no faith in order to bring them to faith. Sometimes people aren't healed physically because there's something wrong in their lifestyle which Jesus wants to heal first. It's no good just praying for the healing of the lungs and doing nothing about the 40 cigarettes a day. It's no good praying for the healing of the liver and doing nothing about the bottle of the whiskey a day. So you'd need to be rather wealthy for that today, wouldn't you? It's no good uh, praying for workaholics' physical health and doing nothing about, nothing about the workaholic condition. Some people are workaholics. They can't stop working. They're overworking. And Jesus may be saying to them through the beginning of an illness, now, I want you to calm down. Less overwork. And so Jesus would not heal the physical condition until he'd healed the habit of, of overwork. We also find that people are often not healed because of lack of forgiveness, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, pride, envy, fear, anxiety. Now these things, from which we all suffer in one degree or another, because we're all sinners, both cause illness and block the healing power of Jesus. And all of us need further healing at that level. The level of inner healing, which is a sort of mixture, if you like, of spiritual and emotional and mental healing. At that level, we're all imperfect, we all need further healing. And what I think we find there often is that as we grow in the Christian life, that opens us up to receive the healing touch of Jesus. Now, we're all sinners. Sin goes very deep in each one of us. So we all suffer from things like pride and failure to forgive fully and jealousy and envy and bitterness and fear. All these things which we wouldn't have if we were perfect. But none of us are perfect. Now, as we grow in those things, we, we open ourselves up to receive the, the healing touch of Jesus. And things like repentance, I think, are very healing. Guilt, in general, is an unhealthy thing, but repentance is very healing. And we all need to grow in repentance. 
We all need to grow in love. We probably all need some healing from bitterness, resentment. And I think we're finding in the charismatic renewal that we really are, God is really using us to, to heal a lot at that level. Most healing at that level is gradual. But nevertheless, God is doing great things there, and so at that level we all need further healing. And we need to go on praying for our own healing as we grow in repentance, in humility, in faith, and hope and love, in praise, thanksgiving, we all receive further spiritual inner healing, emotional healing. Now another reason why people sometimes aren't healed is redemptive suffering. And here I know that not everybody in the charismatic renewal would agree with me. But this is the general line taken by Roman Catholics in the renewal, you find it, Father McNutt writing about it in his well-known books on the healing ministry. And not all Protestants would agree with me, though some would. But, you know, I believe that uh, well, it's one of the truths of the Christian gospel that our sufferings can be fruitful for ourselves and others. And it's a wonderful and important part of the good news. Because any of us can suffer incredibly at any time. There may be the most appalling sufferings of mind or body awaiting any one of us in ten minutes' time. Now, if that suffering is fruitless and meaningless, it's, it's then it's much worse, it's doubly worse. But if that suffering can be very fruitful and meaningful, that's a wonderful thing, and it can make sense of it all. Now, not everybody would apply that to physical illness. Mentalness, I would. Catholics in the renewal would, generally speaking. We should pray for physical miracles. We should pray for mental healing, inner healing, spiritual healing. But until that healing arrives, or if it, you know, as long as it doesn't arrive, we should thank God that our sufferings can be fruitful. Offered up is the expression Roman Catholics often use. And I think God often, has, or sometimes, has a redemptive purpose in an illness. And therefore somebody won't be healed, not because they lack faith, not because the people who prayed haven't prayed hard enough or fasted, but because he wishes that person to contribute for a time or more than a time to the building up of his kingdom through that suffering. And maybe some people aren't healed because it's time to go to heaven, and indeed going to heaven is the only perfect healing. And we shouldn't be trying to, through prayer, to keep people out of heaven one day longer than God wants them to live on earth. Because life in heaven is so much better than life on earth that you're rendering somebody a disservice trying to keep them out of heaven. But we pray for what would be called terminal cases insofar as, and insofar as they haven't finished the work God has them to do on earth. But I've come to back to this, you see, I think in the Roman Catholic Church, where we're still rather sleepy about the healing ministry, uh, there are many people regarding a physical or emotional illness as a cross sent by Jesus, when in fact Jesus wants to heal that illness so that they can bear other crosses for the building up of his kingdom. So we should start by praying and praying with confidence and faith for healing. And if we did that, many people who think their illness is a cross of redemptive suffering, in fact, would find they were healed. 
So we should start by praying for healing. And we should go on praying for healing. But if healing doesn't come at that level, at the physical level, well then, thank God for the truth that our sufferings can be extremely fruitful for ourselves and others. We should never, of course, oppose praying for healing and doctors and the medical profession. Sometimes the answer to a prayer for healing will be to find the right doctor to give the right medicine, the right treatment. And we should pray for treatment being given. I've seen some very remarkable results in recent years of people who are receiving chemotherapy for cancer. It's been a very unpleasant therapy, as anyone who has any experience about it knows. And often, I've known several cases in which the unpleasant effects of that treatment were very remarkably reduced through prayer. And the same can apply to the unpleasant side effects of, of, of many pills. So we should always pray about that, but we should never oppose praying for healing and doctors. Thank God for doctors. Thank God for this hospital. And we should pray for the work of doctors and nurses. But I think we should always start by praying for healing. And what we are finding in our Westminster Prayer Group and elsewhere is that many people who the doctors couldn't help further are being helped further through prayer. And there are cases too when doctors send us cases to pray for. And I'm very glad to say that on our Friday night prayer group in Westminster Cathedral Conference Centre, we have four or five medical doctors on our praying team. And we believe in cooperation with the medical profession, it's not an either or. And also I think we should make full use of the sacraments of the church for healing. The anointing with oil, of course, which is mentioned in St. James's Epistle, chapter 5, but also to see the Eucharist as a sacrament of healing. Whenever we receive the Eucharist, we receive Jesus, and that can be a great moment of healing of spirit, mind, and body. And when we receive the Eucharist, we should surely pray for the healing of spirit, mind, and body. Some people are given special gifts of, of healing. Uh, more and more people, I think, are receiving these gifts in our time. We should pray that God will raise up people with ministries and gifts of healing in our prayer groups and in our churches. But I would say this, that like every other ministry, the ministry of healing needs to be exercised under submission. Because people can have great ideas that they have wonderful gifts of healing and when they can be mistaken. Some people need, need to be dissuaded from trying to pray over people for healing. Others need to be encouraged to do so. And no one is the discerner of their own gifts. And for the exercise of the ministry of healing, as of every other ministry and gift, we need to be humble and submit our ministry to the discernment of others and be obedient. And people who think they have great healing ministries, which they're not willing to submit to, to the leadership of a community and the discernment of others, can be dangerous. And now a few words about evangelism, or evangelism service. I'm not going to talk about the service, because I think that's more straightforward. I mean, it's quite clear that, you know, helping to feed the poor people in the third world and so on, 
and the poor people in helping poor people in this country. That sort of service is clearly a Christian duty and uh, a call on the churches. But evangelism. Jesus says, we read at the end of Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. We read at the end of St. Matthew's gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Our failure to evangelize more is surely a major area of disobedience in most of our churches and perhaps of our prayer groups too. You know, there's the command of Jesus to go and do this. That's what the early Christians were doing. And that's what, by and large, we're not doing in our churches and alas also in most of our prayer groups. Absolute disobedience of the command of the Lord. I really can't think of an area of our church life in general in which we're being more disobedient. And our dis disobedience is so general and so normal that we're just not aware of it. But you see, the early Christian church community was a spreading community, going out, really concerned to bring the good news. If we believe the good news we've received, that Jesus is the answer to life, that he's the, the meaning of it all, the good news of the resurrection, if we really believe this, we should be absolutely bursting in with enthusiasm and love to tell this to other people. And on the whole, we're not. And when a neighbor's sick, we take them grapes, and we perhaps help dig the garden, and phone for the doctor, and that's a good thing. But as for telling them the, what life's about, which is their biggest need often, we're silent. Often because we're ashamed, we don't want to risk snubbed, embarrassed. We are poor disciples often, aren't we? Yes, I am. So I do think there's a, a big call there, and I think there we can learn from the example of, the, of the, the new house churches which are growing up, and indeed often from the classical Pentecostals. I think they can really teach us a lesson often. And I personally think that when we're evangelizing, we need to be careful about judging people as being on the way to hell, who's saved and who isn't. Yes, as, I, as we would say, it, we should preach the good news. There's a great duty, duty to preach the good news. But Jesus said, judge not and you won't be judged. We don't know for certain who's on the way to hell. We, we can't judge in an absolute way that someone is lost. So I think we can preach the good news. We do know that there's no salvation except through Jesus. But Jesus may have his own ways of saving people who've never heard of his name or had little chance of following him. No salvation except through Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we know that that person who wouldn't call himself a Christian is on the road to hell. Maybe, for instance, because of his goodwill, that when he sees Jesus at the moment of death, then he says yes. We don't know. Maybe Jesus is already living in him without him knowing it. And a word about our evangelism. Uh, we Christians do need to be united for evangelism. And I'll read here, I've cut out in order to save time, several other readings from Scripture which I'd hoped to read, but this one I must read from John 17. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. While the followers of Jesus are divided, in disobedience to his command, we are not in a position to evangelize the world as he commands us to do. We proclaim that Jesus brings unity and love to the, to the creation, and if they see disunity and lack of love amongst us, then our gospel is not credible. So probably our, the divisions among Christians may be the biggest barrier there is to the work of spreading the gospel. We need to unite to spread the gospel. And there I think that, you know, the charismatic renewal has a special and unique role to play, as I just said earlier. But we're called for this unity to be united in the great work of spreading the gospel. And we can be united. You know, a few Sundays ago, at least it was in the summer, and I was in a blue tie, standing up in a park in London, witnessing about Jesus with some members of a house church. I've done it three times this summer. And I learned from them. I've learned from them. Yes, we really do need to step out, and we need, we, we need to be united to serve Jesus in the work of evangelism. Well, I've gone on speaking for longer than I'd intended, and... I don't know what we do about questions, whether now or later, but if there are questions, uh, I'd be very happy to try and answer them as far as I can, and reflections, and criticisms. Please feel able to criticise anything I've said. Don't feel you've got to be too polite. Speak the love in truth, as St Paul says. You know, let's have a, have, be free to have a dialogue.